The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Exodus chapter 4, as we continue in this sermon series through the book of Exodus, we'll be looking at the entire fourth chapter this evening. So let us worship the Lord in giving careful attention to this, the public reading of his word. Exodus chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve you. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. 
Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Again, Lord, we do thank you for your blessed holy word breathed out by your spirit. Father, as it comes to us again this evening, please help us by that same spirit, O Lord, grant that we might hear, that we might receive, and that we might, we might believe your word. O Father, grant us true faith this evening. Grant that we would find your word to be most profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training us in righteousness. Make us more complete and equipped for every good work through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you may recall last time we considered chapter 3, and Pastor Holst showed us from that chapter how there the Lord revealed uh, four things about himself. He revealed himself to be the God who is holy. He revealed himself to be the God who remembers his covenant. He revealed himself to be uh, the, 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 the God who is. That is, he revealed even his own covenant name, Yahweh. He who is, he is the great I am, I am who I am. And we even saw that he revealed himself to be the Lord, the God who would deliver his people. Well, surely all of this should have moved Moses, his servant, to immediate unquestioning faith and obedience to the Lord's command, right? Isn't that what should have happened? Maybe by way of uh, illustration and to address the children a little bit, let's put it this way. Children, uh, Moses should have responded the way that your parents would like you to respond whenever they ask you to do something, right? Maybe they give you a job to do, clean up your room or some other uh, chore to help around the house. Go and do this or that for me. How do you respond? Immediately, quickly, joyfully, you do exactly what your mom and dad ask you to do. Is that right? Not always? Or sometimes do you respond a little bit like Moses' response in our text this evening. I will stand by what I said when I preached from chapter 2. I suggested, based on what we see in, in Hebrews chapter 11, that, that Moses was modeling true faith. Remember how he chose to identify with, with Israel and their sufferings. I suggested, based on what we see in Hebrews 11, verse 27, that, that even his going to Midian was motivated by, by true faith. But I also suggested that it was not perfect faith faith, but not perfect faith. Moses is a complex individual, and I think it's helpful for us to remember that at his best, 
Moses is this this amazing type of Jesus Christ. He's a prophetic symbol of that coming Savior who would be faithful in every way, but insofar as Moses was not faithful in every way, insofar as he was disobedient at times, he's also a perfect reminder of why we so desperately needed that coming Savior who would one day come, just like you children who don't always obey your parents so, so well. Moses himself is a great sinner, was a great sinner who needed a great Savior. But the Lord is the God who saves. And even the sin of Moses in our text gave occasion for himself indeed to show himself, yes, to be the holy, the faithful, covenant-keeping God, the Lord who is, and indeed the one who delivers his people according to his promise, his word. We see in this chapter an emphasis on the the wonderful word and works of the Lord. The Lord speaks, but the Lord also does great deeds, signs which prove that his word is true. And we see that that he does this for Moses himself, and then he does so through Moses for the people of Israel. Our message this evening is this, that by his word and works, The Lord calls reluctant, or rather, the Lord returns reluctant Moses to Egypt, where he reveals to his people his plan to deliver them in fulfillment of his promises. That's our message, and we're going to note three things, three points this evening, three things we note about this from our text. The first is this. We see the way in which the Lord overcomes the sinful unbelief and fears of Moses. He overcomes his sinful fears and unbelief. Far from modeling perfect faith in God's word, the way our text begins, we might question whether Moses was even listening to the word of God. You may recall that we saw last time in chapter 3, verse 18, that the Lord, in fact, promised to Moses, he promised specifically that the elders of Israel would listen to his voice. And so how does chapter 4 then begin? The way the ESV translated, it looks like Moses is blatantly contradicting the word of God. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. That could be interpreted as some have taken it to be more of something of a questioning, kind of like, suppose they don't, or and if they do not believe me or listen to me. Kind of like, what if they don't? Then what? Well, whatever the case, either Moses has, has not listened to the Lord or he is not believing that what God has promised will come to pass, will in fact come to pass. We can note in this, this first section, verses 1 through 17, that we have two trios, two groups of three. We have a trio of signs and we have a trio of sinful objections on the part of Moses. So consider it, the trio of signs here. As if the burning bush was not enough, right? As if, as if God's own presence here speaking to his people was not, were not enough, God even brings more signs, three signs. First, we see the staff become serpent, become staff again. Secondly, we see Moses' hand turn to leprosy and then restored to health again. And then the, 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 the third sign there, it's not actually performed yet. Note that, that the first two signs Moses himself is able to perform immediately right on the spot. Perhaps, as I said, this was 
done by way of immediate uh, opposing or overcoming the, the, the sinful unbelief of Moses. But Moses would also have to trust the Lord to do what he has promised to do, trust him to do what he will do in the future, to do something Moses has not yet seen. And so that third sign, the water of the Nile turning to blood, Moses will have to trust that that one will happen. But three signs then, two performed, one not yet performed, just promised. In some ways, I suppose, as we consider those those three signs, they kind of represent the, the sort of full array of all of the wondrous acts which the Lord will perform by which he will show him his lordship over, over all things. Is not our God the God who rules over the deadly creatures like the serpents? And is our God not the God who is sovereign over, who rules over even diseases which would afflict people? And he's even the God who rules over all of creation, even the mighty waters of the Nile River. He is sovereign over all. He is the one with the power to afflict as well as to restore. He, he's, he's able to curse, but also bless. And surely he's able to overcome the sinful doubts and unbelief of a reluctant prophet. Moses is not finished finding reasons why he should not go. A trio of objections. The first one we've already considered. Moses first objects on the basis of them, the elders of Israel, they won't believe me. They won't uh, believe that you uh, appeared to me. But then his second objection turns inward, doesn't it? Me, I can't do it. Note what we see in verse, verse 10. He says, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. We'll say more about that. But then notice the third objection, verse 13. What does he say? Send someone else. And so that completes the trio, right? A trio of what I believe, children, you can rightly see as childish objections on the part of Moses, right? Children, do you ever object that way when your parents ask you to do something? It will never work, right? Or I can't do it. Or why can't someone else do it instead of me? Is that the way you sometimes respond? I had to laugh as I thought about Moses' words here, combined with what we saw him first speak in chapter 3 when the Lord called to him from the burning bush. Do you remember what, what, what he said to him? God called Moses, Moses, and what did he say? He said, here I am, here I am. Those words, here I am, they, they remind me of another prophet, a later prophet. Remember Isaiah? Remember when the Lord uh, calls to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 8 and says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Do you remember how Isaiah responded? He says, here I am, here I am. But what does he say next? He says, and the Lord says, who shall I go? Isaiah says, here I am and what? Send me, send me. See, that was the later prophet. Now, Moses was the original prophet. He was the, 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 the prototypical prophet, the one who, through whom the Lord established the office of the prophet. And what does Moses say? Here I am, but don't send me, right? It won't work. They won't listen, or I can't do it. Send someone else. Here I am. Don't send me. Amazing. Amazing and sad indeed. After that final response, in fact, we see what happens. Verse 14 tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. That really is amazing there. That's the same language which we'll see later in the book of Exodus. Chapter 32, 
verse 10, where the Lord will say to Moses about wicked Israel, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot or my wrath may kindle. It's the very same word there, that my wrath may burn hot against them and that may, I may consume them and make a great nation of you. See, there God was angry with the wicked nation, particularly those who had engaged in that terrible sin of worshiping the golden calf. Well, here it's Moses himself who is shown to be a sinner worthy of the very same judgment which God would later threaten upon the, the, the sinful people. Now, leave for a moment God's immediate response regarding Aaron there, but let's jump down then to verse 24 where we see in, in another strange, interesting event which so powerfully teaches us further about sin and judgment, but also about mercy and grace. So here Moses is on his way to meet his people, the very people for whom he will serve as the mediator of the covenant. And already here we learn that Moses himself is a covenant breaker, a covenant breaker who deserves death. What's the problem here? Well, he's not circumcised his son, his firstborn son. Moses has already broken the covenant of circumcision. Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 17, verse 14, the Lord said, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So clearly, to to refuse circumcision for yourself or for your son was to invite judgment. really was to show yourself worthy of death, worthy to come under the Lord's curse. And that's what Moses did. And so we see in verse 24 that the Lord sought to put him to death. And brothers and sisters, this, this reminds us that but for the grace of God, Moses himself and indeed all of Israel would come under the very same judgment which would, be, which would come upon Pharaoh and all of Egypt. What judgment is that? Well, what does it say in that verse just prior to verse 24? Or actually, verses 22 and 23, Moses is told, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You see, Moses has shown himself worthy, uh, deserving of of losing his firstborn son. And indeed, he's shown that he himself deserves to die. And so it is with all Israel. What then is their hope, or wherein rests their hope? What is their hope that they would escape the same judgment that would come upon Egypt? What is the basis of that hope whereby they will be redeemed as the Lord's own precious firstborn son? Well, what happened for Moses back in uh, verse 25? It tells us that Zipporah, his wife, Zipporah, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin And what did she do? It says that she touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Imagine that. Moses was saved. Saved by what? He was saved by blood. Saved by blood. Interestingly, as as, uh, 
Some theologians have pointed out, Dr. Morales points out, that that, that word touched, the Hebrew word naga, is used only one other time in these first, this first part of uh, the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus. And that's, that is, it's used in connection with the Passover. So later in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, we will see how the, the Israelites will be commanded to touch, Hebrew word naga, they will be commanded to touch the lintel and the two doorposts with what? Touch with the blood, right? Take the blood, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the Passover sacrifice. That's the only thing, the only difference really marking them from any different than the Egyptians. That's the only thing that would save them from coming under the same judgment which the destroyer inflicted upon Pharaoh and Egypt. This is one reason, by the way, that why, why the Jews rightly saw such a close connection between circumcision and Passover. And of course, the New Testament bears that out. The Passover and circumcision are joined in that they both wonderfully point to the sin-atoning work of Jesus Christ. We are saved from death because, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, sacrificed for us. And we are saved by the circumcision of Christ, as Paul calls it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. That is, in the body of his flesh, he's the one who was put off. He was cut off at the cross. He was cut off for our sins. Jesus, indeed, is the one who is our, our bridegroom of blood. And so how marvelous that in anticipation of what was to come, what would come soon for Israel and ultimately would, would come for all of God's people in the person and work of Jesus Christ, here Moses experienced his own Passover deliverance, as it were. What a marvelous testimony, a testimony of the grace of God in the coming Savior. The Lord indeed overcame the sin and the sinful unbelief and fears of Moses. And that brings us to our second point. Not only did he do that, but we see also that he promised Moses his special power and presence. And so not only does this text teach us this evening of, of God's grace in the life of Moses, atoning for his sins, bringing him forgiveness for his sins, but he also raises him up to be such a powerful Servant, but it's all because of God. It's all because of His power, His presence. We see that in so many ways. Let's begin with the thing with which the Lord begins as He counters Moses' doubts. What does He ask in verse 2? What is that thing in your hand? What is that in your hand, Moses? And there's Moses, this the staff, right? I think in some ways we can. We can see the staff as kind of the perfect picture of what Moses becomes by the grace of God, just an ordinary staff, and it's transformed, as it were, into this, this instrument of the power of God. It's called in verse 20 what it will be later called in chapter 17 when it's used to defeat the Amalekites. It becomes the staff of God, the staff of God. So Moses becomes the great servant of God, but it's all because of God's power and presence. It's all because God takes and places in his hands that staff. Verse 17, the Lord says, take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. 
Moses will do that which by himself he could never have done, that which of himself he was too much of a coward to even try to do. How could God, uh, how could, how could God ask him to do this, right? I mean, and think about it. How could God ask Moses to do what he was doing even in this text? Generally speaking, it's never a good idea to go grab a, a deadly serpent or a deadly snake by the tail, right? There's something your parents will never ask you to do, children. If they do ask you, then something's wrong. Come and report that to the elders, and we'll, we'll call the police. I'm joking, of course. They would never ask you to do that. But, but Moses is made a unique type of Jesus Christ, a type of that Genesis 3.15 promised seed of the woman who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. Moses is a great type of the, the, the uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse Two, that one who would one day seize, the Bible says he would seize the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bind him for a thousand years. Interestingly, uh, later in, in biblical prophecy, the prophet Ezekiel, Pharaoh, will be referred to as the dragon, Ezekiel 29, verse 3, and chapter 32, verse 2. And so the Lord is, is raising up Moses as this, this servant who will go forth and do this great work, slay the dragon, as it were, slay Pharaoh and, and, and all of Egypt, but all by the power and according to the purposes of God. Just, just note his power. Note his sovereignty in this passage. Not only the staff and not only the one who, who into whose hands the, the staff of the Lord is placed, not only will they be used as instruments of God, but even Pharaoh. Pharaoh will be made into a servant, as it were, an unwilling servant of the Lord. Through Moses, the Lord will grab Pharaoh by the tail, as it were, and will use Pharaoh to accomplish his purposes. He will say to Pharaoh in chapter 9, Verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so to that end, what does the Lord do to Pharaoh in our text? Look at this, note this very well. Verse 21, don't miss this. This is the very first time in the book of Exodus that we see this language of of the, the heart of Pharaoh being hardened. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I will harden his heart. What a reminder. A reminder that, that mankind, humankind, is thoroughly depraved, and Pharaoh is a picture of what we all are by nature, a picture of what every one of us would continue to be if God were to simply harden our hearts by giving us over to what we are by nature, giving us over to our sin. Praise God for his grace. Praise God that he is a God who shows mercy to those whom he will show mercy. Praise God that he has shown that mercy to us. Praise God for his grace in transforming us into his servants. The unique role of Moses notwithstanding, we, we have a, a passage which should encourage all of us about the power of God enabling us to go forth as, as servants of the Lord, uh, a, a passage which should encourage us uh, about the, the Lord's ability to overcome our shortcomings and our deficiencies 
And so Moses doubts that he is up to the task given his speaking deficiency. I think this should remind us, by the way, of of the Apostle Paul, who later said the same thing about himself, right? I'm not eloquent in speech, and yet marvelously he was empowered by the Spirit of Christ to preach the gospel. Well, likewise Moses, he says, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of of speech and of tongue. That's something that maybe Moses suffered from some kind of speech impediment, some speech defect. Maybe he was a stammer. Maybe he stammered. And growing up as a prince in Egypt, Moses understood well how important it was. If you were to go and speak before Pharaoh, you needed to be able to speak well. Moses, the magicians, the, the, the advisors to Pharaoh, they were, they were gifted orators. How could stammering, perhaps stammering Moses, ever go and confront Pharaoh? Oh, we have the answer, don't we? The God, the Lord, the sovereign one, he's the one, verse 11, he's the one who created the mouth. He says, surely I'm able to overcome whatever deficiencies you might have. And God promises his power and his presence. He says in verse 12, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now that the Lord certainly could have simply overcome Moses's Uh, deficiencies and enabled him to do the job all on his own. Certainly he did enable Moses to speak when he needed to speak. But note also God's provision in raising up Aaron to assist him. It's the Lord who enables us by his power and his presence to serve him, and he will provide all that we need as we serve him. And he raises up those servants to come alongside us that we might work together and support each other and serve the Lord together. Note again the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. I presume, as some have suggested, I think this is, is correct, that, that even as Moses was, Moses was challenging God, even angering God with his sinful unbelief and making up his lame excuses, already God had purposed to provide. Already, already I think probably Aaron was on the way. Verse 14, the middle of the verse, the Lord says, Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. We can think of all of the amazing, great things that the Lord did in raising up Aaron, the brother of Moses. It became this this marvelous, wonderful reunion. Forty years, it seems, Moses had gone without seeing his brother, and suddenly they were reunited. How beautiful that must have been when, when they first met together. Verse 27 tells us that they kissed each other. What gladness of heart indeed. What a glorious foretaste of heaven. And through them, God would do such amazing things. Of course, of course, Aaron would be the progenitor of the priesthood. The priests would come from the sons of Aaron. And as we see in verses 15 and 16, the relationship between Moses and Aaron, wonderfully it teaches us about the, the office of the prophet. The prophet is the mouthpiece of, of God. When the prophets would speak, they would indeed be able to say, as the prophet Isaiah later would say, that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We see in verse 15 that God promises to be with both of their mouths, Moses and Aaron. But what striking words in verse 16 where the Lord tells Moses, he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God. Imagine that. 
You shall be as God to him. Just think about that. And if that doesn't speak to the amazing role that Moses would play, the unique way in which he would represent God to the people. And but he, he was but a weak flesh and bones man, a man with feet of clay. He was just like you and just like me this evening. Uh, apart from the grace of God, we can do nothing. But as he was for Moses, our God is a God who promises to us. He promises to his servants his power and his presence. Well, that brings us to our last point this evening, which is, is that in all of this, God shows himself to be the faithful and true Lord of the covenant. And I want us to see the way that, that it's proven in the way that our text begins and then it ends. Look at it. Verse 1, we see, as, as, as we saw, Moses is there doubting. They won't believe me, right? They won't listen to my vo- voice. They won't believe that you really appeared to me, Lord. That's what Moses is saying. Well, look at down at the, the last verse, or flip over to verse 31. What does it say? And the people believed. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads, and they worshipped. The Lord has, has proven you wrong, right, Moses? You're wrong. The people heard. They heard Aaron speak. They saw the signs, and they believed. Now, we, we know that for many of these, maybe most of these, uh, this, this was not true saving faith. For now, they would, they would believe. They would accept Moses as having come from the Lord, But this is a generation that would rebel against the Lord and would die in the wilderness. Sadly, many of them, I believe, would would end up dying in their sins and be eternally lost. In fact, if you'd like to flip over to John's gospel this evening, I think this is similar to something we see in in John chapter 2, second chapter of John's gospel. We read in John chapter 2, verse 23, about when when Jesus was uh, in Jerusalem, it says, at the Passover, the feast. Look at what it says in the middle of the verse there, John 2, 23. It says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Similarities here. Seeing, Seeing the signs and believing. But look what it says at verses 24 and 25 of John 2. It's, says, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that not all who believe truly believe, not all who quote, unquote, believe, Believe with true saving faith, that, that, that saving faith of a true disciple who follows Jesus and his word and continues in his word even to the end. So sadly, many believe, but they don't truly believe. But, but these words in our text, the words in our text this evening, as well as the words in John Gos- John's gospel, these are words not, not about them so much as what they, they're about us. They're written for God's people in in teaching us about what God calls us to be as those called to embrace him in true faith, saving faith. 
It's what God is calling us to do even this evening. Ultimately, these are words about who God is. Since God is indeed the faithful and true Lord of the covenant, he will have his people whom he redeems. He will have for himself a people who come to him and believe and follow, a people who truly trust him and obey him, a people for whom that true faith is borne out in their life as they persevere in their faith, a people who truly worship him. Note how our text ends. Not only did they believe, it says, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads, and what did they do? They worshiped. Now, for some of these, it wasn't truly of the heart, but it speaks to what the Lord calls us to do in calling us to repentance and true faith as those who follow the Lord. He calls us to worship. They worshiped the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what about us? Shall we not respond in kind this evening? This is the Lord God who indeed overcomes the sins of his people. He's overcome our sins if we've turned to him in true faith and embraced him. He's the God who has, has, has destroyed our sins. He's washed away our sins through the sin-atoning blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And indeed, he has promised us his special power and his presence. Even the Holy Spirit who guides us and moves us to worship him, to serve him in all faithfulness. In every way, he has shown himself to be for us the Lord who is the faithful and true Lord of the covenant. Is he, is he so for you this evening, dear friends? If you don't know him, if you've never come to him, embraced him in true faith, then he calls you to do so this evening. He's shown himself to be the God, the, the one who alone can, can remove the judgment that is against you because of your sins. He sent his son to suffer and die, that, that you can be washed and made clean and forgiven. And I would invite you, if you've never done that, come to him this evening. Believe in true faith. Believe upon the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. And every Christian, let us do that again this evening afresh. Let the signs remind us and confirm in our hearts that, 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 that God has truly sent his servant, not Moses, but the greater than Moses, the signs. They should prove to us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Christ. And let's trust him and let's embrace him. And let's live that life that he has given us, life in his name. Trust him afresh. God has given us his word this evening, not that we might be those who doubt, not that we might be those who refuse obedience, but that we might go from this place this evening, trusting in him ever more deeply, eager to serve him in all faithfulness, eager to obey him. Yes, children, in obeying your parents. And they tell you something they'd like you to do. All of us obeying our Heavenly Father quickly, joyfully, trusting, obeying in every way that he calls us to. Let us, to be, let us be that people who walk before him in all covenant faithfulness. Let us be the people who receive him and who bow down and worship, offering him our lives. May God help us to be so.